Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, in the first of a series of interviews with England's elected mayors, we'll be hearing from Steve Rotherham, the mayor of the Liverpool City region. We're going to be talking about levelling up Brexit and the challenges of representing such a diverse area, which includes the Wirral, St Helens and parts of Cheshire, as well as the city at its centre. I'm keen to discuss the media, which has done so much to portray Merseyside in a negative light. Jeremy Corbyn might just get a mention too. Before that, a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which features content that you can't read anywhere else. If you want to take out a subscription, then head over to bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And Steve Rotherham, welcome. You were elected in 2017 to something called the Liverpool City region. I've gone through some of the places that make that up. Is it a real place? Well, it very much is a real place, just the same as Greater Manchester is an association of local authorities coming together, or even London. As you know, Adrian, I spent far too long in London when I was the MP for Liverpool Walton. And again, they don't feel as if they're a homogenous group of people or individuals. There are many different groups all coming together. And so what I like to say in our area, because we have the likes of St. Helens and we have Southport, is that we speak with many accents, but we now have one voice. And that voice is a powerful voice to government to do things differently. You know, devolution is about wrestling power from Whitehall and Westminster and then trying to do things at a local level. And it feeds into the government's levelling up agenda. It's been much talked about. How has it played out on the ground for you since you were elected in 2017? That's if you believe that there is a government's agenda of levelling up. I don't believe it. It's just a soundbite and it's hyperbole that has never, ever really done what it says on the tin. So, for instance, in our area, we can demonstrate that we have levelled up locally. There's a place called Kirby, a little fishing village that I'm from, on the outskirts of Knowsley. They've been left behind for donkey's years. What we did was work with the local authority and the leader of that council to have ambitious plans to regenerate the centre of it, what we call the townie. And we've done that, demonstrably so. It was identified in the Times as having the highest increase in footfall post-pandemic of anywhere in the country. So in other words, if you target resources, there are things that you can do. The government, however, conversely, have failed to do anything in a place called Highton. Highton was a government priority one area. It's received no pounds and no pence. While, of course, Richmond, just by accident, I'm sure, they got £19 million. And Sadiq Javid's former constituency got £147 per person from levelling up. So it's a myth and we need to bust it. But hopefully when there is a change of government, as inevitably there will be, we'll get a Labour government that will properly start to address levelling up. Yeah, I saw a report, surprisingly, you might think, in the Express of all places, suggesting that the most deprived 10% of local authorities in the UK received a smaller share of the levelling up fund than they would have got 
have the money been distributed equally? Well, the distribution mechanism needs to be looked at, doesn't it? It's opaque at best. I'd say it's a bit dodgy. And if you look at what levelling up is about, it's trying to give those areas that haven't had a fair crack of the whip the chance to do something which will bring their standards up. It's not about levelling anybody else down, but it's about those left-behind areas getting the opportunity to push forward with those ambitious plans, which hopefully in their areas will raise aspirations of people and show that there's a future, give people hope. That's what it should be about. And that's what I've spoken to Lisa Nandy about. And I, I believe when we do get a change of government, you will see a fairer and more clear and transparent funding distribution. And that's the starting point for levelling up for me. And Lisa Nandy is the Shadow Secretary of State for levelling up. How far do you think devolution should go, though, Steve? I mean, in Scotland, there are tax-raising powers. Even under a more generous system of funding, you are still essentially beholden to Westminster. Do you think that the Liverpool city region should have its own tax-raising powers? First of all, I don't believe that we've got devolution. I think we've got decentralisation because you get a pot of money from central government that has strings attached to it. I've been speaking and I've visited Berlin and some of the, the federal structures over there. That's proper devolution. And those people have told me that they were amazed when they came over and, and spoke to me that we call this thing devolution. And they're like, no, 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 that's not real devolution. I said, well, we know that. It's like delegation. But that's what the government pretends we've got. If we had proper devolution, it would give us some fiscal devolution and it would give us additional powers. And what we're actually asking for is for the ability for us to do things more nimbly here than a monolith in Whitehall and Westminster could possibly ever do for us. So we have to demonstrate that you get better value for money, a bigger bang for our book. We've been able to do that with every pot of money that we've had that's been devolved to us. And we want more of it. You know, we are the most politically centralised country in the OECD. And yet we have the most unbalanced economy in the whole of Europe. Now, I think those two things are intrinsically linked. And what we're saying is, to break that chain, what we need is a single pot of money. And we might see that might be because both Greater Manchester and the West Midlands, who are what's called trailblazers, they may well be getting a single pot settlement in the future. Now, if that happens and it works, then I want us to be next in line. And does the single pot settlement then mean that a sum of money is transferred from Whitehall to the region in question, leaving it to the elected mayor in combination with the combined authority to then distribute that as they see fit? It is. It's exactly that. And of course, what you're getting is just a slice of the cake rather than the bar of consequentials that Scotland and, and Wales get. But we've quite clearly said as a group of Northern mayors at the Convention of the North just a couple of weeks ago, that we believe that there should be a, a Barna formula type situation for our areas, because unless we 
redress and, and address the imbalance in the economy, then UK PLC is not going to maximise the latent potential of areas like ours. Now, genuinely, we're not asking for handouts. We don't want to build white elephants or grand schemes. We want to develop industrial areas and sectors that currently the UK basing lots of its eggs, should we say, in one nest in London can't possibly do for us. So we want to be the powerhouses, just like the federal structure in Germany. But because of the imbalance that you describe, the reality is at the moment that London and the South East do generate disproportionate amounts of wealth for this country. In order to get to the situation that you want to be in, Whichever government is in power, they're going to have to transfer money that's generated in London in the southeast to regions like Liverpool City region. And politically, that's going to be a difficult sell, isn't it? Well, I think what you've done, Adrian, is outlined the argument that I'm putting forward that if an area has received investment over a long period, then there's huge economic growth. And that's what we're missing out on in areas in the north. And that's what the Liverpool city region is talking to government about. Because I don't want London to have a detrimental settlement because the Liverpool city region gets a fairer share of funding. That's not what we're asking for. We're asking for us to have a look at the whole country and then decide on where those areas are, where there's a return on the investment to UK PLC. Now, people will think that Liverpool City Region, Liverpool as the brand, is just about the past or, you know, about historical things that we're rightly proud of, but it's not. If you have a look at where advanced computing is happening, if you have a look at infectious diseases with the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and the development in that as a, a sector, life sciences, have a look at the laboratories that are being built, all of these fourth industrial sectors are happening here. And of course, that's even without touching on the likes of the Green Industrial Revolution, which really will find a home in the Liverpool City region because we will become Britain's renewable energy coast. I did ask you the question about whether you'd like tax raising powers as part of that change, as what you describe as decentralisation. Just straight answer. Would you like those powers? Yes or no? There's a presentation that we put to government, um, which is about fiscal devolution. And Jamie Driscoll, who's the mayor of the north of Tyne, he's pulled all of this together for, on behalf of all the mayors. So we believe there are things that could happen that working with the government would again give us the possibility of, of accessing these additional funds, but also, as I keep on saying, giving a return to the Treasury now, the exchequer won't give anybody a pound if all they're getting back is 10 bob. They'll give us a pound if they're getting two pound back, and we'll give them a multiplied effect on the money invested. One of the key responsibilities for any regional mayor is transport. And I know that recently you unveiled, I think, a half billion pound investment in the railways on Merseyside. And you've talked about creating a public transport network equivalent to London's. The difference is that outside of London, regional mayors don't have the same powers, do they? 
Well, there's two things, isn't it? One is the deregulation of buses in 1985 under Thatcher and the absolute shambles and mess that it's created across the whole country other than, believe it or not, London, because they remained a regulated service. And that's what we're asking for. We're asking for the opportunity to have something that London has always had. We're saying a London-style integrated transport system because, as you know, the Oyster card, you get off at Euston, you use your Oyster card or you can use a debit card now, but you can go anywhere. What happens there is that the fares are capped and then at the end of the evening, a complicated and sophisticated algorithm works out where those proportions of funding go to and all that sort of stuff. Well, I guess what we can do something similar. And so we've started that by buying our own half a billion pounds worth of brand new trains, the most accessible and sophisticated in the whole country with battery technology that takes us beyond our third live rail system. So we have a conductor rail in, in the Liverpool city region. We won't need that for new stations because our batteries will take us 20, 30, even 40 miles. So we're really excited about this, but we want our trains to work with our buses. So we don't want buses turning up at train stations two minutes after the train's left because the regularity of our trains is 15 minutes. It's not like the tube. So we want the system to work together. And we also want active travel to be a fundamental part of that transport revolution. But it's not having a moan at London. Great that they've got a great transport system. Every major European city has a good transport system. Our network at this moment in time, is not as good as it should be. And I don't believe that we're second-class citizens, so I'm not accepting a second-class transport system. Is government receptive to giving you those equivalent powers, though, to TfL in London? Well, there's something called the Bus Services Act 2017, so we're using the powers of that currently to look at the public control of buses, so what we call franchising. But franchising is what happens in London at the moment. So it's exactly the same system that they've got. And we'll be making a final decision on that within the next two or three months. That means that we will hopefully, if it's a positive decision, as I believe it will be, we'll be rolling out a franchise model in 2024. Now, Greater Manchester are ahead of us and they're doing theirs later this year, at the end of this year. And obviously we'll have a look at how theirs is going. But it means that Mayors are taking those difficult decisions. Andy Burnham and myself will be the first two mayors to take public control of our buses back to us, the people, putting the public back into public transport. You talked a little earlier about being proud of the past of the city of Liverpool, and there is plenty to be proud of, and anybody who has a little stroll around Albert Dock and can see the various museums there. There's the Beatles Museum. There's the fantastic Museum of the City of Liverpool. There is also a slavery museum there as well. How do you propose to address the historical wrong of slavery on which much of Liverpool's wealth was founded? Yeah, there's, there are a number of songs that talks about the blood of Africa on every wall and there's visible signs, road signs, for instance, that celebrate some of those people who are involved 
in the transatlantic slave trade. So there's a lot of things that we've had to do to address our shameful chapter in regard to the international transatlantic slave trade. You know, but Liverpool the city was one of the first to apologise for its role in the slave trade. And we've made huge progress. You know, diversity, we've always believed, is one of our great strengths. We talk about music, and you mentioned the B word, the Beatles. I didn't. I don't often refer to four lads that shook the earth. Did you know they're from Liverpool, by the way? <laughs> but look, the diversity thing is important to us because have a look at some of the other musicians. You know, the real thing from Liverpool. They were the most successful black artists in the 70s. You know, there's so much that we can take comfort from. But we do need to have a, a period of self-reflection and, and, and self-criticism. And we've done that. I think we've had the courage to say, for instance, what happened with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd Something needs to happen that is long-lasting. That is a legacy for those communities that have been literally left behind for generations. So we've done that. We didn't go for a knee-jerk. We went for a very considered approach. Uh, and we're introducing what's called our Race Equality Hub. We, the Combined Authority, put £3.2 million into that to tackle racial inequality. And look, institutionalised racism, which still goes on in a, a multicultural society like the Liverpool City region. But we've got our Race Equalities programme. And hopefully people will be aware that there's something called the World Reimagined, which was a number of globes that were all over the country. And I think we're the only combined authority outside of, of London to really take a hold of this and to have that trail because we wanted to do two things. Yes, we need to recognise our past, but also we need to be looking to the future, don't we? And we need to learn those lessons and educate people in the future. And that's really what the whole equality strategy was about. I've done my bit for the Liverpool Tourist Board, mentioning some of the attractions around. Oh, there's many more. You haven't scratched the surface, basically. Well, Liverpool's a, a fantastic city, and I, I love visiting the place. It's a great, great place with a, a fantastic heart. But that fact has not always been reflected in the coverage of the city in the media. And through the various Byline Times outlets, we're very consumed by the misrepresentation of various aspects of life in Britain through the media. And you were an active campaigner to get justice for the 97 who died at Hillsborough successfully in that case. But for many years, Hillsborough played into a narrative about the city that was almost exclusively negative. I'm intrigued to find out from you where you think that narrative comes from, but also just to address that question about the media and the role that it plays in framing how we understand our own country. What a brilliant question, because you're right, it is about that wider context of this. Look, we fought for truth and justice, and you say we got justice, we didn't. There's nobody to this day being held accountable for the unlawful killing of 97 people. I mean, this is not, you know, a banana republic. This is something that we quite proudly go and boast about, don't we, on an international stage about our judicial system. And yet, uh, nobody is 
being held responsible. Well, that's something that is a stain on this country's reputation. But let's move away from Hillsborough. What we've tried to do is to highlight the injustices because we don't want other people to have to go through the things that we went through. So, for instance, it was convenient, wasn't it, that they had the stereotype about Scousers and that they could hide behind that. And that was perpetrated by the right-wing media. If you go back to the Beatles period, go back to the 60s, to have a Scouse accent was one of the biggest assets that you probably have because you go around the world and people recognise it straight away. And it was only sort of post-industrialised Liverpool where that seemed to change. And, you know, you started to get characters on the television and the baddie, instead of being in a cowboy film when it was the, the baddie was the one in the, the black Stetson and all the, the black uniform, if you like, the baddie then became somebody with a Scouse accent. I think televisually you can look back and target a specific time that that change started to happen. And then you had, of course, stuff that happened, industrial strife, we had the toxic riots, but loads of other places at that time had riots. And I'd ask most of your listeners to go and have a look at how many others had them, but they will know the toxic riots. Why specifically the toxic riots do they know? Because of the misrepresentation in the media. So look, it, it's not a woe is us type thing because that despicable man who used to be our prime minister called Boris Johnson once talked about Scousers wallowing in self-pity. No, they didn't. They stood up against the establishment and beat them because we knew that we had truth on our side. And that was what the battle was about. It was to try to do two things, to try and get the truth out there, which happened to try and get justice for those people who lost their lives. But also it was to try to redress these the smears that had gone on which, as I say, were a convenient excuse then for other people. For instance, football fans singing, always the victim, you know, grow up for God's sake. That's why we fought so hard, I think, over, it's now 33, nearly 34 years of having everything thrown at you, but we came out the other end. But I just wonder whether you think that that anti-Liverpool narrative was a result of the fact that Liverpool was seen as a left-wing city, as an anti-Thatcherite city, particularly by the Murdoch press and the likes of the Daily Mail. Yeah, I mean, it was the Murdoch press that really did this in, wasn't it? You know, that famous or infamous headline in the Sun newspaper. I mean, the Sun to this day is not bought in Liverpool and the city region. And there are many other areas now who have joined that, you know, and so the don't buy the Sun thing is not just about here. I see it all over the country, and certainly at football matches. And that's because they did specifically target this area. So Thatcher and her cabinet sat around a table in Downing Street contemplating the managed decline of an area like Liverpool. I mean, goodness me, can you even get your head around a prime minister of this country wanting to mothball a whole city because that city had stood up against her vile policies and fought back as hard as it did. Now, I think what happened there was because of that dichotomy between a right-wing Tory government and a left-wing city council, that clash echoed for many, many years 
And it's been a slow burner, in all honesty, to regain our reputation. But that's why the combined authority and devolution is really helpful to us because doing it ourselves, we can prove actually we can do it better than the Tory government in Westminster. When you were cutting your teeth in Westminster, you were a PPS, Parliamentary Private Secretary, to Jeremy Corbyn, who, like the city of Liverpool, was very much in the crosshairs of the tabloid media in this country. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn was unfairly dealt with by the press in this country, or did he bring some of that upon himself by simply not recognising that some of what he did and said might not play out well with the British public? Well, there's not a Labour leader in history other than a very short honeymoon period for Blair where they got that fair crack of the whip, especially with the right-wing media. And so it was expected. Jeremy, unashamedly, left-wing in his views. But I supported Jeremy as his PPS and told him that he could rely on me and I would be upfront and loyal. Ask him today whether he still believes that to be the case, because it is, it's true. And he knew that I wasn't a Corbyn supporter. I mean, I helped run Andy Burnham's campaign against Jeremy Corbyn because I believed that Andy had not only the sort of political capacity to do something of the enormity at that time of rebuilding the Labour Party after electoral defeat, but also had the common touch, you know, somebody who could communicate to a wider constituency than just the left of the Labour Party. And, you know, I had many a philosophical discussion with Jeremy over lots and lots of issues, but we had a really good working relationship. And I tried to feed back to him the honest opinions of people who weren't just Corbynites, because otherwise, if you surround yourself with just like-minded people, it's an echo chamber. And I wanted to try and bring a slightly different perspective at times. I've seen Corbyn speak in a small hall to an audience of adoring acolytes, and it was a powerful and impressive speaker. Do you wish that Keir Starmer had some of that passion? Well, I tell you what, you can't knock the passion, but also you were right. When we were walking into some of these big events, it was always Jeremy and myself, as you know, the way it is. So I suppose unfairly, he would say, PPS are sometimes called bag carriers. And he once said on a Radio 4 programme, if I had have asked Steve Rotherham to carry me bag, he would have told me to pay off. Um, and I would have done, but I was always there. Um, so that I could see what was happening. And the adoration that he had, it was um, it was a bit like going back to the Beatles, you know, as if Paul McCartney had walked into the room, there was like whooping and screaming and, and, you know, gnashing of teeth. So I think some of that may well have affected the way he was thinking because he was talking to people who were, as you say, acolytes who were devotees of the Corbyn type of policy and what you sometimes need is to understand that not everybody feels as strongly for you as those people that we were regularly meeting Uh, and as I say I think he had some fantastic ideas some of them 
everybody agrees with. In fact, if you have a look now on um, renationalisation of the railways, even Tory voters agree with Jeremy and ourselves that that's what should happen. So it wasn't lunacy that he was coming up with. It was, you know, practical solutions to the problems of the country that we were facing. And some of those policies, I think, are as popular now as they were four, five, six, ten years ago. Keir Starmer, word on him? You know what? Keir is very different than either of those people that have mentioned, Andy or Jeremy, very different. He's more forensic, I'd say, and he knows what he wants to do. And he knows that sometimes the way in which he has to do that might not be the absolute purity of his belief but he wants to do it because he believes in the greater good. And I think there's something to be said for, for that. I'm not certain that Keir would describe himself as the most charismatic man on the planet. But do you know what? Boris Johnson might describe himself thus. And we don't need somebody like him running our country. We need somebody who will be strong and stable and sensible. And if that means some of that charisma is put aside, then that's a, probably a good thing at this moment in time because we need politics to reconnect with ordinary people. In the aftermath of Brexit, which of course Boris Johnson was proud to take ownership of, get Brexit done, it was said that the UK's Shared Prosperity Fund would replace pound for pound money that had previously been given by the European Union. Has that happened? It certainly hasn't. You know, the funny thing about UKSPF is the Tory party manifesto included this. You can have a check, but I think it's on page 17. But it, it was talking about exactly that. You know, no one would lose out. Well, have a little guess which area has lost out. So our allocation has seen a decrease of 102 million pounds year upon year Uh, and for us that means that some of those community projects because that's where this gets to this UK Shared Prosperity Fund gets right down to some of the the minutiae of what we have to try to deliver and those organisations those voluntary groups those community organisations they're going to get nothing because of these reductions. So we're doing what we can do with some of the pots of money that we've been given and that we've raised ourselves because I have a precept and we've raised some money and we have tunnel tolls because of the the tunnels that go under the River Mersey and other things. So we're trying to, if you like, rob Peter to pay Paul on some of these things and backfill some of the, the deficit that's been left by a broken promise from the Tory government. How has Brexit left an outward-looking region and a port city like Liverpool? Well, it, it's left us in a difficult position. Look, I'll make no bones about it. I said it at the time. I thought that Brexit was the wrong question to the wrong people at the wrong time. The referendum was totally unnecessary. It was about propping up Cameron and the Tory government at that time. And the seeds of discontent were as equally sown in Whitehall and Westminster as they were in Strasbourg and Brussels. So I knew it was the wrong thing for us. But look, 
the decisions being made. So what does it mean to me who's, you know, somebody who voted to remain? It means that we're potentially on the right side of the country to take advantage of some of the trade deals that we've been done with North America, for instance. So Liverpool as a strategic port has grown in importance because of that decision. I still think it was wrong, but I have to look at the positives as the Metro Mayor. So we're looking at an internationalisation strategy. We're looking at what the potential might be for further trade deals coming into the port of Liverpool. The bit that we need, which is always the problem with the government in Westminster, is that we need to join up that with getting the goods that come in to the rest of the country. And we've got a really, really poor rail network system in this country. At this moment in time, Northern Powerhouse Rail has been muted, you'll know, and that does come to Liverpool, HS2 doesn't, but it would connect us north-south. But a proper Northern Powerhouse Rail would provide us not only with faster speeds, but also the capacity to get more freight onto rail. The vision that Grand Shaps put forward for us, option 5.1, does neither and causes huge detriment because there have to be a blockade to Lime Street Station for one, two or three years, which would destroy our Vista economy. So the whole thing is an absolute shambles. He was trying to do it on the cheap. We don't agree that that's the best thing for the whole country. And so Brexit for me is an opportunity that already looks as if it's being missed, even though I think it was the wrong decision for the whole country. Steve, thank you very much indeed for your time. That's Steve Rotherham, the elected mayor of the Liverpool City region, first in our series of conversations with England's elected mayors. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This has been the Byline Times podcast produced by me and Harvey White and funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Get more details over at bylinetimes.com and please take out a subscription if you can. As I say, head over to bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. We'll see you next time. Cheers now.